0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtied Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, to coincide with Patient Blood Management Awareness Week, we're talking about clinical decision support and its role in patient blood management. Today, we're uh, rounding with Dr. Matthew Warner, a Mayo Clinic uh, consultant in anesthesiology and perioperative medicine. Welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us, and welcome today, Dr. Warner.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Croyd. appreciate it.
0: <laughs> it's wonderful to see what uh, color hair you have. Normally, I'm used to seeing you with uh, the <laughs> OR scrubs. and uh...
1: <laughs> I know. I had to leave the PJs behind, and I put a suit on today.
0: So so to kick us off, uh, what is clinical decision support, if you could unpack that for us, and, and then how does that fit in patient blood management?
1: Sure. Uh, happy to talk about it. Clinical decision support is um, an information technology-based approach to providing clinicians uh, with appropriate information, um, based on general knowledge, medical knowledge, is also patient-specific information as garnered from the electronic healthcare uh, record. Mm -hmm. And providing that to clinicians, integrated into their workflow at the appropriate time and in the appropriate manner so that it can enhance their decision-making for a given patient. Mm -hmm. Now, clinical decision support is applicable to a wide variety of different medical problems, it expands different medical practices. Patient management is one area where clinical decision support's been utilized. And it's been pretty rudimentary, to be honest, in in Mm. patient blood management. Uh, Most of it's been based on giving uh, clinicians tools for when they order transfusion therapies. For example, it might provide them with guidance about uh, what is appropriate uh, clinical transfusion guidelines that we'd recommend for Mm. a given patient or patient population. And then also integrate some of the information from the patient's health record, for example, the patient's most recent hemoglobin mm. is X number within the last 12 hours. That is above what we would recommend as a as a institutionally endorsed or nationally endorsed transfusion guideline for this therapy. You know, mm. and and it retains the autonomy of the clinician. Mm. The, where the clinician is still able to make what they think is the appropriate choice for the patient, mm-hmm. but they're being informed by these directed, uh, integrated uh, tools to help them make the best decision. So. As you know, my
0: heart goes uh, pitter-patter for education, and what you're saying in part it, it kind of sounds like um, in the education world, we, we talk about just-in-time education, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could kind of compare and contrast uh, how is uh, clinical decision support similar to education? How is it uh, a little different than than just straightforward education? Sure.
1: So. Certainly, education is a big component of clinical decision support. So what you're drawing on is you're drawing upon general medical knowledge, evidence-based guidelines, you know, the best information available for the given problem. So you're drawing upon that information and you're trying to deliver it to the clinicians at the right moment when they're working in their clinical workflow in front of patients. Now, educational efforts, so certainly there's education involved there because we're trying to educate providers and provide them with the information, hopefully not for the first time, but provide them with the, the relevant information at the time of making decisions. Now, most educational efforts, there are great educational efforts that happen in clinical workflows at the right time, but a lot of educational efforts extend beyond a, a clinician's day-to-day practice, right? So there's you know, educational training, in-person sessions, simulation sessions, there's online training modules everyone completes at certain times Mm -hmm. Um, and education can be extremely helpful and it can certainly change uh, clinical decision making and behaviors of providers but it's not always readily accessible Mm -hmm. in the day-to-day practice when you're caring for uh, a variety of critically ill patients in the intensive care unit and you have to make a decision about how to treat this patient's anemia it can be hard to remember or to take the time to think this is what I've learned through my educational training is appropriate for this patient. Clinical decision support tries to take some of that burden away from the provider by providing them with that knowledge in real time so that when they're working within their clinical workflow, they're not trying to think back and remember previous training. It's more providing them or prompting them with information that they've probably already seen. Sounds like it's a
0: lot of uh, making it easy for the person to do the right thing. That's the whole goal, (laughs) to make it easy, to not make it burdensome. So earlier you were talking about uh, an important feature of clinical decision support is uh, maintaining that physician autonomy uh, in that that moment. And I was wondering if you could kind of share in your experience what makes clinical decision support, or I guess implementing that, uh, how can you make clinical decision support successful? Because, you know, I I mean, I I suppose that you could just uh, put up uh, pop-ups that happen and like pop-ups happen on my computer. (laughs) I I click, you know, yeah, (laughs) ignore, go away. Uh, How how do you uh, make it successful?
1: This is the key point. Hmm. Everybody who works in the medical environment and interacts with the electronic health record and knows that there are a lot of times we're bombarded with information, whether it be best practice alerts or, you know, just things we have to acknowledge. It mm-hmm. begins, becomes very tiresome. Before long, you're not looking at any of the information that's being provided to you. It's simply another thing you have to click just to get through your day-to-day clinical practice. Clinical decision support, when it's done well, is not that. Mm-hmm. It's seeking to be something completely different. Now, certainly there's the potential to make clinical decision support tools that simply just become cumbersome, mm-hmm. and they are simply impeding or are perceived as impeding good clinical care when I mean, the whole goal is to actually trying to optimize uh, clinical care. So in order to actually make it successful, you truly need the people who are going to be using these tools to be engaged in the design, the development, and the implementation. They need to be engaged at all at all aspects of this thing so that they know – this is the problem that we see as a, something we can improve on. We need new tools to help us improve, and we need them delivered in this fashion so that it's not another click box that we have to get through. It's something that's actually meaningful and is actually informing our practice. So you can't just have this designed by a bunch of uh, IT technologists that are saying, we, that we say, you know, as a patient with management leadership, we recognize that this is a problem. We're transfusing too much plasma. Come up with some rules, and we'll throw them together. That doesn't work because clinicians aren't going to buy it. You need them engaged. You need them involved in the design and creation of these things. I, I'm really fascinated
0: by that. So if we could just take a, a second and explore that a little bit more. It, it strikes me that sometimes uh, we're bringing together the magic happens at the merger of two different um uh, spheres of knowledge you mm-hmm. know and, and you, you know right now you're just bringing up the IT knowledge uh, and then the clinicians knowledge and um, you know the IT professional doesn't exactly know what is meaningful and relevant for the physician likewise I imagine the physician may not even realize what is possible <laughs> for uh, that what can that IT do and I think a lot of times I, I see myself and, and other colleagues either like overshooting or undershooting mm-hmm. uh, that mark I was wondering if you could share kind of um, how that collaboration between you and IT has uh, gone or how have you kind of uh, navigated so that you can really come out with the best and most meaningful uh, clinical decision support?
1: Yeah, so it goes absolutely both ways. So We a lot of times assume that things are possible that aren't is usually the case and that I've seen where we say, how hard can it be to build a rule where the patient has this in their medical record that it either triggers this or doesn't allow this. We think that should be easy, but it is incredibly difficult, especially in electronic health record systems that are continually updated. You know, they do an update and all of a sudden what worked before does not work. So there's a ton of moving parts. There's a ton of support and time and money that needs to go into these things if you're trying to sustain it on your own. So it's a lot of work from the information technology side. The, for the information technology side, looking at the clinicians, I think uh, it hasn't been my experience that they've been saying, well, why don't clinicians just do this or follow the rules? I think they truly, the folks that I've worked with, recognize that we would like some clinical insight because we understand how to create the rules and the processes, but number one, we need to know What's the knowledge that we should integrate into the rules? And number two, how do we actually put it in the clinician's workflow? And I think with that in mind, um, it's been pretty successful here at Mayo just because our um, some of the core leadership of our patient management efforts are clinicians. Uh, Dr. Darrell Core, for example, has been heading this for a long time. I've been helping him as well. Um, and we've brought in. You know, surgeons, uh, medicine doctors, pediatricians, uh, laboratory medicine, transfusion medicine personnel, everyone who's involved from different areas Mm -hmm. to really say this is what would work in the workflow and this is what would not work from any aspect of our patient management efforts, but certainly from clinical decision support as well.
0: Fantastic. I, I hear you saying really, the engagement is is essential for success. I hear you talking about starting with, or I guess if I can paraphrase you, starting with what's the purpose rather than uh, walking in the room as, as the physician saying, all right, IT person, this is what I want the, the rule to do. <laughs> but, you know, this is my purpose. This is my meaning behind and let the IT person come back with a, a solution. Let's just flip this around and talk about the pitfalls of implementing uh, clinical decision support, either from experience that you've had uh, personally here or uh, talking with colleagues at other areas. What are some pitfalls that we should share with our listeners that might be thinking about clinical decision support or might be thinking about improving upon
1: the clinical decision support they already have? Sure. So there are many pitfalls of clinical decision support. So we've touched on some of these already. So number one making something that's cumbersome to clinical workflows is probably the biggest pitfall uh, in not having the appropriate people involved when you're creating them. But beyond that, clinical decision support itself uh, is not always uh, immune to provider choices, right? So we want to keep autonomy for providers. So say someone orders, for example, I'll give you an example of ordering a red blood cell transfusion, very basic clinical decision support. You, you go to order a red blood cell transfusion, it provides you with the most recent hemoglobin value, for example, for a patient. It says this is either above or, or outside of what we consider a normal transfusion uh, guideline. Please you know, select what, you th- what is your indication for transfusion. We give you five choices. We give you an other category so you can clearly fill in, you know, I'm doing this I'm because of this reason, which is, might be unique, or no, this patient has you know an acute coronary syndrome, so this is why I'm transfusing a little bit higher, whatever it might be. What we've found is that even in our best efforts to make this integrated, providers, when they still have this autonomy to make choices, they often will just click a box to click a box. Mm-hmm. So even though they say, we say the hemoglobin is, we know the hemoglobin is eight and a half, they'll click the box that says hemoglobin's less than seven. Mm-hmm. You know, And so we did a very interesting project where we went back and we reviewed the concordance rates between what was selected through the clinical decision support and then the physician, uh, computerized physician order entry, and what was actually occurring in the medical record. And in many cases, it's good. Concordance rates are high, 80, 90 plus percent for certain conditions, uh, pediatric, congenital, heart disease, those sort of things. But for others, it's very, very you know, variable. So we had for certain things, concordance rates less than 30% for what was actually occurring in the medical record and what providers were selecting. Dr. Warner, you're breaking my heart here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly it's something that you need to be aware of. Um, and again, I I think physicians want to keep autonomy with clinical decisions, and I think we need to certainly cherish and preserve that. I have a lot of friends who are afraid of artificial intelligence and taking over clinical decision making, and it's hard to glean everything from an electronic health record in real time. And I agree, but at the same time, we need to recognize that there's limitations. And when we see people that are selecting the wrong, selecting something that's truly not true, we need to ask why are they doing that? Is it because it's truly not true? Or is it because our intervention or decision support that we've implemented, maybe we're not implementing it correctly? Maybe there's some fine tuning we can do here to make it more usable for them. Again, the goal is not to make this something we click through as a burden. It's we need to go back to the practice, interview patients, or interview our providers that are using these tools, and figure out is this working or not working. Learn How Mayo Clinic implemented a fully integrated patient blood management program, including the use of clinical decision support guidelines, analytics, and patient blood management practices. For additional information, visit nationaldecisionsupport.com.
0: So Dr. Warner, now we're kind of getting into an area of evaluating a program. I was wondering if you'd share your thoughts on on evaluating a clinical decision
1: support program? Sure, um, it's a great question because we want to make sure that anything we're doing is having the intended consequences and not becoming what we said, unintended consequences or, or being burdensome to the practice. So there are a variety of ways that it, to do this. Probably the most robust is to implement something, say in a randomized controlled sort of fashion. You implement it and you you, know, you measure, uh, you implement in certain areas, not in others, but that's very time intensive, it takes money it's, practic- it's impractical mm-hmm. to do for many of these interventions. So what's typically been done for a lot of these things is when we design them, clinical decision support systems, for example, we run them in the electronic health record, but not, they're not available to clinicians. They're running what we call surveillance mode. Mm-hmm. And so in the background, we're gathering data on when these rules would trigger for, for, uh, in clinical care. So we can see you know, how many times a certain decision support rule might show up in a, in a clinician's workflow um, what the potential consequences might be from the decisions they might make and from one of those that are actually made. So we run a lot of this stuff in surveillance mode before it ever goes live. So we make sure that we're triggering at the right times and that there's no bugs in before we implement it. Now when you implement, then what we typically want to do is you want to look at changes in behaviors, so provider behaviors, and also in clinical outcomes for patients because we've got to keep this focused on the patient. So we say in the in the year preceding the implementation of our clinical decision support rule, here are our transfusion behaviors. Here were, you know, how the laboratory values before and after certain things. Here are the hospital lengths of stay, certain patient outcomes. And we really monitor that very closely before we implement. And then we repeat the same thing in a period after implementation. And we truly, the whole goal is to say we're improving or we're at least not harming patients by mm-hmm. what we're doing. And then something we haven't done as much, but I think is very important to do, is to do more of this qualitative assessment of the of the folks that are actually using these tools right so we've designed these tools we've designed them with input from clinicians now that we've implemented them we want to go back and actually talk to the practice and say hey tell us about this the new clinical decision support that's been implemented what are the what are the what are the the potential roadblocks that that impede the workflow for you or is it working great? Or what are the things that aren't working? And so by doing that, we gain a lot of insight just by talking and and even observing practices and uh, how patients are or how providers are actually using these in their daily workflow. Well, that really resonates with me because
0: you know it, it sometimes it strikes me as it's really hard or difficult to get meaningful numbers, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five. What's the, qu- I think going back to really, if you're going to get meaning out of the information, I think a lot of that qualitative uh, information, cause it sounds like you're automatically going to have a lot of quantitative yep. information from the process running itself, but you really need some qualitative information to put some context, uh, for that.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing. There's is- in published literature, there's plenty of quantitative sort of information about CDS in patient blood management space, for example. Even at our own institution, we've published some stuff about changes in transfusion behaviors and some healthcare outcomes after implementation of certain things, such as moving you know, default transfusion numbers from two to one unit, those sort of things. But this qualitative aspect is something that we are interested in exploring more, and we've had these conversations, but it's not something that's widely published or widely known, and I think there's a ton... Of knowledge to gain just by sitting with people and having focused, really uh, structured interviews or semi-structured interviews with these folks.
0: Well, let's dive into this a little bit then. So, so uh, now let's let, widen the scope a little bit. Uh, and and you know, patient blood management uh, is the playing field. Uh, you've been in this area for uh, several years now. You've published uh, multiple times in this area and, and given many wonderful presentations. What has surprised you most? about patient blood management?
1: It's a great question. Um, I think there's a very common misconception of patient blood management, simply being a bunch of folks that just wanna take away transfusions. And I think that's not it at all. And I think uh, we're doing a much better job now of framing it as a way to optimize blood health for patients. So taking away the focus from how do we just prevent really severe acute anemia by transfusing or treating it with transfusions and really moving towards uh, how do we focus on anemia and not just treating it with transfusion, but defining what's causing anemia and thinking of other ways to manage anemia appropriately for patients, not just surgical patients. And also extending this out to hematologic abnormalities, coagulation issues, platelet disorders or dysfunction. And so what's been surprising is that I think we've brought a lot of people on board with it now that are starting to understand the bigger picture. Um, and I think a lot of the people that were initially you know, a little suspect of some of the activities are I think now coming along nicely, and we have great representation from all these different areas. So the surprising thing was probably some of the initial reaction to some of the activities, but I think it's really grown, and um, it's been very rewarding to see that uh, – we're having difference, uh, making a difference, and it's a win-win for both our institution and you know saving resources, and um, there's probably some financial implications associated with transfusion uh, reduction and things of that nature. But also, we are certainly not harming patients. In many instances, we're probably doing the right things for patients by trying to optimize their outcomes. So, I mean,
0: I, I, uh, I was a water polo player back in the day. Team sports uh, are really in my blood. Like you're saying, it's it's really um, there's a lot more of a team that's come and now coalesced uh, around patient blood management. Mm-hmm. Given that, where do you think the future for clinical decision support is now that we've got all these uh, team players in on the team, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so I think more and more people are interested in building more sophisticated clinical decision support uh, sort of mm-hmm. approaches. So instead of saying you know, most of them are created for transfusion orders and things of that nature. But instead of that saying, you know, give us some diagnostic support tools for when a patient has anemia during their hospital stay. You know, what what should we be doing to either evaluate this or manage it, non-transfusion-based approaches? Or when you recognize in the electronic health record that a patient has a certain disease condition, to provide them with certain protocol-based um, uh, protocol based, uh Order plans, for example. Let's say you know, given this patient's condition, consider these therapies rather than these therapies, Um, or even beyond that. um, A lot of the data analytics that can come from clinical decision support can help figure out patients at risk for complications of transfusion, for example, uh, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, for example, or things like that, and really trying to tailor. Uh, some of the clinical decision support to specific disease conditions that patients have. I think that's kind of where the future lies with uh, clinical decision support. All of that takes a tremendous amount of IT resources and money and structure. And so it's not possible for every place to do this, but uh, there are ways to get around that. And with lots of different medical systems, moving to unified electronic health record systems, for example, there's opportunities to have stuff that translates well between different practices. Wow. Seems like uh, the scalability
0: potential is, is just uh, really the uh, opportunity we have in front of us. Wow. So normally I, I ask, uh, I have uh, uh, colleagues uh, from the laboratory here, and I ask them, you know, what what is it that you wish that the bedside uh, clinician knew about uh, the laboratory? <laughs> and given that we've got a, a broad audience, I, I thought I'd just flip that question around uh, to ask you and sort of say, okay, as a bedside uh, physician, what is it that you wish the laboratory understood uh, about
1: your practice? It's a very great question and probably a loaded question too, but it's uh, one that I, th- I think needs to be asked. And I think laboratory medicine folks, whether transfusion medicine or just laboratory medicine uh, and clinicians, we all need to get on the same page. So. I think we all would benefit from spending time working together and even spend some time visiting physical environments that we we each work in. And so I think there's a lot to be gained then. Um, Now, as far as things that I wish that laboratory uh, professionals knew, I guess there are challenges. um, For example, when you're providing intensive care or uh, acute anesthesia care, there are challenges in, for example, hemostatic management in patients that are diffusely bleeding despite normal appearing laboratory values and things of that nature. So I think sometimes, and I've heard a lot from my colleagues, that, oh, it's frustrating when I'm trying to order platelets for my patient who is diffusely bleeding after cardiopulmonary bypass with a platelet count of 100, and I can't get a platelet transfusion, or I can't get two units of platelets when the platelet counts 50. And I understand those frustrations from their side, but I also have spent some time with our transfusion uh, practice, and I understand that this is a very precious resource. There are a lot of implications in releasing multiple units at a time. So I think it's just that crosstalk and just finding ways that that we can actually talk to each other uh, more intelligently in real time and actually visit each other in our clinical practices to to understand some of the, the difficulties that occur in each environment and what the concerns are. And I think once we do that, it's really easy to find some common ground and to say, look, you know, there's some sense here. You know, in this case, it makes sense to give you a platelet transfusion, despite the platelet count being high or whatever it might be. Um, and same from our side to say oh, I understand why the blood's taking longer to get here. I, I understand why I need to send in, in, in a type and screen on this patient who just had one in an outside hospital. There are some implications from the laboratory side that a clinician might not understand uh, without actually spending some time with those folks. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but uh, I, th- I think that's you know kind of a basic approach I would take.
0: I love that answer because in my book, anytime a physician orders two playlets at a time, an angel
1: loses its wings somewhere. (laughs) I'm not advocating for the practice. I'm just, I'm telling you what I hear from different folks around the practice. And that's just one example of many. I think
0: that's a brilliant uh, point though, about uh, sharing and going to and visiting each other's clinical spaces. Uh, I wrote an editorial uh, in the past about uh, the importance of uh, rounding uh, in the clinical environment for the the laboratory to to appreciate some of these aspects so uh, if we can take this out a little further uh, you know the tagline for this podcast is uh, connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations I was wondering if you just share a personal story on how uh, reaching out to the lab has made a difference
1: uh, for one of your patients Sure. So um, a recent example is uh, very rarely, but it does happen. We have patients that require ongoing transfusion support when they're transferring between different environments. For example, usually it's going from the ICU environment down to the operating room, but occasionally it happens the other way. Patients down in the operating room, they've had a big surgery, they require continued transfusion support either upon arrival to the ICU or during transport even to the ICU. It would be a rare circumstance, but it does happen, and I actually had this happen recently. And so I learned that when you have, for example, a massive transfusion protocol in place and working in one environment, it doesn't necessarily translate to the other environment unless you contact the blood bank and your colleagues there to say, oh, we're actually physically moving environments now. Just a heads up that you need to know that so that when we arrive up in our new environment, we're all on the same page that this patient still requires blood product support. And so um, that was one area where we had a patient that once that came up and we were wondering, well, where are the blood products? Oh, the lab hasn't been notified that we've moved the patient out of the operating room. And so there was a big gap there. And so we sat down with key stakeholders from surgical practice, anesthesia practice, ICU practice, and our transfusion nurses and uh, transfusion medicine blood bank f- folks. And we came up with what do we do in these sort of, you know, rare extenuating circumstances to ensure that there's no lapses in care, to ensure that everybody knows exactly what's happening on. And it's all about communication so that the the blood bank knows when a patient is no longer needing blood products or when the patient is no longer physically going to be in, for example, the operating room environment. So Without those crucial conversations, there's a potential for patient harm, and none of us want that. The whole goal of all the activities related to patient blood management is improving patient outcomes. We've been rounding with Dr. Warner, talking about
0: clinical decision support today. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us. Be sure to check out uh, on Twitter. The Mayo Clinic Patient Blood Management has their own Twitter account, so that's at Mayo Clinic PBM. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations especially this patient blood management awareness week.